0: Hello and welcome to Abscond Podcast with me, Ethan Renault. This is episode 32. It's the fifth part in the Covenant series I've been doing on kind of understanding the entire Bible beginning to end by looking at it through the lens of the major covenants. dive in. I have to do a little media talk. Media talk. Because I don't know how this happened. I think it's because if you remember several episodes ago, I interviewed a guy named Beckett Cook and uh, he had he had his publisher send me a copy of his book so I could check it out beforehand and um, I think I somehow got on the publisher's mailing list so that every time a new book is published. Um, before it comes out, they send me the proof copy of it. Uh, and it's addressed to Ethan Renault of Abscon Podcasts. So I'm like, hmm, interesting. But the problem is, all the books that they're sending me are really uh, bad. Because, well, okay. So I think I've only gotten two or three plus Beckett's, which was not bad. But I got, uh, last week, I got Every Man's Battle... Um, I don't know if you remember that book. I remembered it because I had to read it in middle school. And I remember that it was not very helpful because it basically just was one of those books, kind of like this ultra macho, like just have more discipline and look away and bounce your eyes and addresses basically none of the underlying issues that go with uh, lust or pornography or sex addiction. And so it really frustrated me, but they had mailed me the 20th, anniversary edition. And I was like, okay, maybe they've updated it, modernized it, fixed some of the issues. I opened it up and the first page of this book is the author going into graphic detail about him checking out a female jogger running on the side of the road and what she was wearing and how the sweat looked on her skin. And like a lot of details I don't even want to share here because it's just like incredibly graphic. And I was like, Seriously? You're trying to help people stay away from lust by putting images like this inside their head? Like that does not make any sense to me. What I said about it in the blog post I wrote was it's as if 50 shades of gray and a nun slapping you on the wrist with a ruler had a baby. It would be every man's battle (laughs) because it somehow expects you to just be less lustful by willing yourself away from it while also simultaneously filling your head with those thoughts. Yesterday, I was sent this book called Enter Wild by Carlos Whitaker. Let me just read you these subtitles of this book, and you tell me what you think about it. Uh, The subtitle is, Exchange a Mild and Mundane Faith for Life with an Uncontainable God. And on the back, the top line says, Experience the wild and wonder Jesus promises. Experience the wild and wonder Jesus promises. Man, I don't even know if they had an editor look at this book. Experience the wild and wonder. Experience the wild and wonder Jesus promises. Oh, like experience the wild and wonder that Jesus promises, I think. I don't know. This just seems like one of those books. I'll be honest. I flipped through it. Didn't read it because I don't really want to. I'm in the middle of reading a Stephen King book right now, and I am exponentially more interested in that than I am in any of these books that this Christian publisher has sent me. My issue is that Christian writers seem to simply be these days relayer of information or, you know, pump up machine to get you stoked by quoting a couple Bible verses out of context and then... um, creating some kind of ethos like this enter wild like if you know jesus your life should be an adventure and it's like no it shouldn't because in the bible every time god curses a nation he takes away their land and causes them to wander every time he blesses a nation he gives them land to settle so if anything god will bless you by keeping you in the same place and giving you a long life with land to settle and grandkids. Where in the world do you get this idea that Jesus, I don't know, but I'm tired of these books. Maybe I'll flip through this one and read a little bit more of it. Maybe I won't. Um, One page I did flip to, I can't find it right now, but he was talking about how he got invited to the White House. I just opened up to that page, and he was like, I opened up the letter, and I couldn't believe my eyes. Barack Obama had invited me to the White House for the prayer breakfast. And then I stopped reading. But my guess is that he was saying, and your life with Jesus could be full of unexplainable opportunities like this as well. And it's like, dude, one, where on earth are you getting that logic? And two, Nice brag that you got invited to the White House with Barack Obama. But, like, why is this a book? Why does this book exist? Why couldn't I get on the mailing list for a publishing company that produces good books? I don't know. Okay, I'm tired of media talk. On with the rest of the podcast. Media talk. Okay, Covenants Part 5. Today, for the last one, we're actually going to hit two... Covenants rather than one. So um, if you've listened to the rest of them, which by the way, you can't listen to this podcast without having heard the rest of the covenants podcast. So please start with number one and then make your way back to number five. Today we'll be talking about the Davidic Covenant with King David, and then moving into the New Covenant, or as you're probably used to hearing it, the New Testament. So as you've probably picked up by now, I don't know if I explicitly said this in the past, but all biblical covenants build on one another. You see this progression as the biblical narrative moves from Adam and Eve in the garden to the fall of man, Um, you know, sin enters the world. And then this progression begins where God makes a covenant with Noah and that's a covenant like with all of creation where God promises that he will never flood the earth again. And in exchange, he kind of gives Noah the most basic instructions on how you should live um, in light of this, which is don't eat animal meat with blood still in it, but you can eat all animals, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and um, don't murder each other. So those are pretty basic instructions, right? And he goes from this covenant with all of creation to a covenant with a father or a family with Abraham. Um, he says, he will be a father of what? Of a great nation. So um, after Abraham, you know, there's the exile in Egypt, but then after they come out of Egypt, there is this creation of a nation where God gives Moses all these laws on Mount Sinai and the laws, you know, kind of institute that they are a nation. They are a tribal people with laws And then in that progression, um, we read through Joshua, they get the land to settle. And I won't get sidetracked by the Canaanite conquest and the violence there. But then judges, the people don't have a king ruling over them. They have judges who settle the disputes and rule over them. So that's why the book of Judges is called Judges. Because in lieu of a king, they have these uh, judges who kind of rotate through ruling over the people without the title of king. Judges is a very violent book because um, there wasn't really a specific ruler, and because the text repeatedly says, and everybody did as they pleased. So, when everybody does as they please, you end up with a very violent society. So, now we move into the final covenant of the Old Testament, which is with King David. So now we move from the covenant with a nation to the covenant with a king, or a kingdom, but specifically the king. So who is King David? He is the second king of Israel. The first one was Saul. He was elected because he was taller and more handsome than any of the other men in Israel. And God's like, you know, I don't look at the outside appearance, I look at the heart. That's where that verse comes from, if you ever heard that. Because then David is actually smaller than his brother's. And when uh, the prophet, oh my gosh, is it Samuel? I think it's Samuel. (laughs) I should know this. Goes to look for him at Jesse's house. Jesse brings out his other sons. And um, Samuel looks through all the other sons. And he says, not you, not you, not you, all the way down the line. Then he says, don't you have any other sons? David was in another field tending the sheep. And Jesse goes and gets him and brings him forward. And Samuel says, this is the one. Why was David in another field? Most likely because he was from another mother. He was the brother from another mother. Sorry, I just had to say it. Um, and that's why if you read, oh, is it Psalm 51, where David writes, in, in sin did my mother conceive me? He may not actually be talking about original sin. You, you can't really build an Old Testament argument for original sin based on that verse because it's more likely that David was conceived outside of wedlock, which is why in sin did his parents conceive him, and he was in a different field. Uh, Fun facts of the day about David. So, original sin is the thing? I don't know. Do babies go to hell? I like to think not, for that reason. Um, Did I tell you? I think I did, about my um, professor's theory that You know, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they realized they were naked. And in the same way, every toddler has a day where there's like a light switch and suddenly they realize they're naked and they'll never let anyone see them naked again. Um, Whereas prior to that, they're just running around with everything hanging out with not a care in the world. Um, And he says that that's the day they become responsible for their own sins. (laughs) I like that idea. Anyway, let's look at some of the passages which describe this covenant. So, first we're going to turn to 2 Chronicles 1-6, and if I remember that correctly, it's where a bunch of bulls get slaughtered, because the first element in every covenant is, everyone say it with me, bloodshed. Yes, bloodshed. Solomon went up to the bronze altar before the Lord in the tent of meeting and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. That is a large number of burnt offerings. Is it literal? Is it figurative? I don't know. Not a hill I want to die on either way. Solomon offered a lot of burnt offerings. He does the same thing later in chapter 7, verse 5. Now, why is Solomon offering the sacrifices if the covenant is with David? That's a great question. To answer that question, we'll flip backward a few verses to 1 Chronicles 17, 1 through 14 let me just read it for you. After David was settled in his palace, he said to Nathan the prophet, "Here I am, living in the palace of cedar while the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent." Nathan replied to David, "Whatever you have in mind, do it, for God is with you." That night the word of God came to Nathan, saying, "Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says: You are not the one to build me a house to dwell in. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought Israel up out of Egypt to this day." I have moved from tent to tent, from one site to another, from one dwelling place to another. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their leaders, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the, pra- I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name like the names of the greatest men of the earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them. See, going back to the idea of being planted, being blessed with land. Wicked people will not oppress them any more, as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also subdue all your enemies. And then here's the important part. I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor, referring to Saul. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of the entire revelation. And then David responds with a prayer of thanks to the Lord for blessing him and promising him that his kingdom will never end. So, a bunch of things to pull out of there, right? Um, First off, um, in another place, I can't remember the verse off the top of my head, God tells David that he is not the one to build the temple for God because David was a man of violence and bloodshed. His hands had spilt too much blood. However, in the history narrative of the Old Testament, you see that David kind of takes care of the surrounding enemies, the surrounding nations. And then because of that, his son Solomon inherits a kingdom of peace. They're not in battle. They're not fighting any nations surrounding them presently. So Solomon is actually the one who builds the temple. So there's this like back and forth interplay between Solomon and David, because David's the violent one. God doesn't want his temple to be built by a violent man. He wants it to be built by a man of peace who has not shed blood. Also note, and this is possibly one of the most important things to note about the temple, God didn't ask for it to be built David is the one who said, I'm living in the house of Cedar. Why am I living here while God lives in a tent? And then God kind of replies to David, it seems kind of harsh in the text. Like, did I ever ask for a temple to be built? No, I wanted to live in a tent so I could move with my people, right? If you're in a tent, you're able to move with people and like be with them wherever they are, wherever they go. If you're in a temple, you're kind of cemented to one place. And God's like, I'd rather be with my people than have this great temple built for me that looks really pretty. Because I don't think God cares as much about the aesthetics of a beautiful cedar temple as he does about being with his people. And that's why in the New Testament, um, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Because how much closer can you get to someone than literally living inside of them? I wrote a blog post about this a couple months ago um, about what that phrase, your body is a temple, really means. And now it has nothing to do with tattoos or working out or exercising or eating right. And it has everything to do with God's presence being so close to you. It's within you. You don't have to go anywhere else in order to experience it. So one more thing I'll say about the temple, because God never wanted it to be built Um, I think the reason he didn't want it to be built is because he knew how people function. He knew that if the Israelites had a temple, they would start to idolize the temple and it would be misused, um, and people would like honor and worship the temple more than the God for whom the temple was built. Kind of like if you think about a worship leader in today's church who ends up falling more in love with his music than he does with the God he's singing about. Similar idea there. So when Jesus comes in the New Testament, he says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days because the temple is shifting. God's presence is shifting from living within a building to living within people. And Jesus himself is the presence of God. So he's referring to his own body when he says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. Back to the covenants. Solomon offers the bloodshed because he's the one who builds the temple, and kind of solidifies the covenant there. The sign seal and symbol of this one is really strange. Um, the best account or the best example I could see is um, in First Chronicles twenty nine twenty two, when Solomon takes his first seat on the throne, because there, remember the the sign seal symbol is the physical. Representation of an invisible reality. The promise is that David's heir will be on the throne forever. So when Solomon, and I guess all of the subsequent kings after him, take their seats on the throne, you have that physical reminder that David's heir is on the throne forever. Now, of course, it's not physically talking strictly about David's heirs forever. Um, It's talking about a specific heir who would eventually come from the line of David, who is, of course, Jesus. Jesus is a descendant of David. So when God says your heir will be on the throne forever, of course, he's referring to Jesus coming and um, being that heir on the throne forever and ever. So that's pretty simply the Davidic covenant. The, The interesting thing about this one is, um, the people at the time of Jesus were looking for a Messiah, right? And if you're expecting a Messiah to come, and he's, he's supposed to be a son of David, what was David like? Well, in addition to his psalms and poetry and being a man after God's own heart, he was very warlike. He led a lot of battles. He killed a lot of people. So if someone tells you, hey, someone is coming who's just like King David and he's going to be the Messiah, he's going to be a new David, the line of David, you're going to think, oh, this guy will also be a warlord. This guy will be violent. He will, at that, at that time, he will overthrow Rome. He will kill the Romans for us, and Israel will be free once again. Jesus, of course, was not violent. The only things he overthrew were the tables in the Jewish temple, ironically. And then, of course, he destroyed sin, death, and the grave once and for all. So now we can transition into Jesus and his covenant and what he did. And I think that the best way to understand the entire New Testament is to understand it through this lens of a covenant, because so much of the New Testament is unpacking, okay, in light of the previous six Old Testament covenants, or sorry, five Old Testament covenants, how then do we live according to this new covenant? How does this new covenant change everything for us theologically? How does it change everything for us in light of Jesus, in light of Yahweh, God himself, who came in the flesh and suffered and died on our behalf? Like, the entire New Testament is unpacking this. So you have things like Galatians 3 and Galatians 5, where it says, Anyone who has faith in Jesus is a child of Abraham. And circumcision of the flesh doesn't matter at all because circumcise your hearts and be a child of Abraham, not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And then he talks about, you know, the faith, um, the son of faith versus the son of the flesh and how like um, Hagar and Ishmael were Abraham trying to take a shortcut and like force God's hand and like cheat their way into having a son And that would be like the child of doubt or the child of the flesh. Whereas the child of faith is the one who was waited for, um, Isaac. So you have all these allusions to the Old Testament covenants, which you won't understand unless you have a proper understanding of the covenants. And again, I'm just doing a cursory flyover of all this. You could go way more in depth with all of it. But let's just look real briefly at the new covenant, the elements of it. The most obvious one is the bloodshed. Um, where do we see bloodshed in establishing this new covenant? It is not the blood of an animals anymore. It is the blood of Jesus, of God himself, shedding his own blood on behalf of the people in a way to say, I shed my own blood for you, which seals the covenant once and for all. The rules, um, I think, of this covenant are really kind of strange and ambiguous, or maybe I should say that they're phrased A bunch of different ways, depending on which verse you want to look at. The most simple way is have faith in Jesus and live forever. Um, If you turn away from him, you will not be with him forever, and there will be some sort of suffering that entails that. And then the sign, seal, and symbol um, can get a little tricky, and this is honestly what a lot of denominations are based on and what they might squabble over or disagree on. Because, like, the signs are baptism. I think the two most central would be baptism and communion. But this is a place where Catholics and Protestants would disagree. Because Catholics hold to what's called transubstantiation. Meaning they believe that at a certain point in the transaction that the priest does over the elements, they literally become the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. So if there's ever leftovers, and I think Eastern Orthodox, some Anglican traditions do this as well. Um, in those traditions, if there's leftovers, the priest will drink the entire wine that's left over and eat all the bread that's left over, because you're not just going to throw the body and blood of Jesus in the trash, whereas a lot of more Reformed traditions who would follow in the footsteps of Luther or Calvin would say that those things are merely symbolic representations. Luther actually held to something called consubstantiation, meaning that the presence of Christ is there beneath the elements. However, they do not literally become the, you know, literal body and blood of Christ, but there is some kind of mystical transaction that's more than mere symbolism. So anyway, those are the signs of the covenant. Baptism is just this public declaration that I have died with Christ and I rise with him out of the water. And um, remember, you're just, you're, you're always physically representing or physically presenting or manifesting something that is an invisible reality that you can't see and you're acting it out physically. So this is the new covenant. There's a lot more I could expound on but for the sake of brevity, I think I'll just wrap it up there. Jeremiah foretold the new covenant roughly six, 700 years before Jesus. If you want like the first mention of the new covenant, it's in Jeremiah 31, 31. And um, he says, behold, I'm making a new covenant where it will not be inscribed on on tablets of stone, but on human heart. And in other words, it'll be a more personal covenant. It won't be about laws and rules. It'll be about God having a relationship with his people. Oh, and then the most important sign or seal or symbol of the covenant is the Holy Spirit. Um there's several verses that talk about him being a seal on the believer that holds them until the day of salvation or like holds seals them. It's like a legal legal term, like the Holy Spirit seals something, like confirms it, like signs the contract basically. And the Holy Spirit does that for us. It seals us into this covenant with God. So we have the bloodshed and Jesus shedding it on the cross for us. We have the promise of salvation through faith in him. And then we have um, the sign seal symbol acted out through baptism and communion and then sealed in us with the Holy Spirit. If you want to understand more about the new covenant, honestly, just basically flip open to any book of the New Testament And look for that covenantal language, especially in Hebrews, you'll see a lot of it. In Galatians, um, what are some of the other big ones? Uh, Those are the first two that come to my mind. Uh, Matthew is written to the Jews, so he'll reference the Old Testament a lot. And um, anytime they reference the Old Testament, they're probably kind of building on this foundation of the covenants, because that's what the Jewish people of the time would have been familiar with. That's what they knew. It was just kind of the foundation rock on which their entire theological, political system was built. So to learn more about that, read the New Testament, keep your eyes open for this covenantal language. Uh, I feel like I'm tired of talking about covenants and hearing myself say the words, so I'm going to wrap it up there. Um, please let me know what you thought about this entire series, and if you want to do more similar theological, biblical-themed topics like this. I like doing them. I like doing the research and then compiling it and presenting it in a way that's understandable and helps shape the way that you see the entire Bible. It's just fascinating. The more you learn about it, the more interesting it becomes and the less boring it becomes. So you can get in touch with me at Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at Ethan Renault, or email me ethan at ethanrenaud.com. I love hearing from you. If you've ever emailed me, you know I reply 90% of the time. Sometimes people just say weird stuff to me and I don't reply to that. So (laughs) some people like are convinced that I'm gay still and they email me all the time saying, quit hiding it, just come out. And I'm like, I'm not gay, trust me on this. So if you email me about that, I will not reply. Almost anything else, I will always reply to it. Um, Even if you just wanna say, hey, have a great day. I'll say, hey, you have a great day as well. (laughs) Um, Sometimes that happens. Um, I love interacting with people. I love talking to people, getting to know people from all over the world. So um, let me know what you thought about this. Please give me ideas for future podcast topics, and I will try to make them happen. The last thing is the podcast after this one next week, you must listen. I am so beyond excited for it. It is unlike any podcast I've ever done. I began dabbling in the world of fictional podcasting where I wrote this short story I was really excited about. Then I read it and then I put um, like creepy music and sound effects behind it. And it just turned out so well. I'm so excited to share it with everybody. One of the coolest things I've ever made. So make sure that you're subscribed and don't miss that next one, if, especially if you're into like creepy not horror, but just a little creepy fictional short story um, that I made. I'm really excited about that. This has been Abscond with Ethan No. I will talk to you next time. Bye.